Good morning, everyone. Uh, the reading, first reading this morning is Ezra 4, verses 1 to 16. Uh, and that's on page 336 of the Pew Bibles. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been, <coughs> me, have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esahedron, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as Sirius, the, God, the king of per- Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an acquisition against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Beshlem, Methedra, Tabal, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramathaic script and in the Aramathaic language. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshia, the secretary, wrote the letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshia, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and the officials over the men of Tripoli, Persia, Zerek, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal um, deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent to, to, to King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundation. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is, is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and, and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates.
The second reading is taken from the book of Acts, page 754, verse 754 to 8, verse 4. When they heard this, they were furious and garnished their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at their feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stronger than him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Then he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul and they was, and they given approval to his death. On that day, a great prosecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judah and Samaria. God, godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off the men and women and put them in prison. Those who were not who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is the word of the Lord. I speak to God. Uh, let me add my welcome on this uh, lovely, stormy, cold, bleak day. Uh, stay close to someone; they'll keep you warm. Open up to Ezra chapter four. It's uh, an unusual part of the Word of God. Uh, if you've just joined us, we're looking at Ezra over the next few weeks. We looked at it, we started last week and looked at the opening chapters. Why are we looking at it? Um, Ezra is a book that reminds us of a few things. One, the greatness of our God, uh, how big and wonderful he is, but also uh, reminds us of the importance of giving him the worship he deserves. Uh, so turn over there. We're, we're turning effectively back in time. We're about 539 B.C., uh, the exile people, the people of God had uh, spent seven years in exile in Babylon. They've returned to the devastated Jerusalem. They're rebuilding it. That's where we pick up the story. You should have found Ezra 4 by now. That's been enough time. How about I pray for you and for me? Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you that it is powerful and life-giving. And we pray that uh, even now you would be breathing life into us, uh, helping us to love you all the more fully. Uh, and changing us to live lives that actually honour and please you. Uh, we ask this in your son's Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week as we, we looked at the opening of Ezra, I left us with some prayer points. Uh, first, I, I encourage us to, to ask God to stir the spirit of the people in our city. To change our, you know, Sydney siders are passionate people, but to, to transfer their passions from just the gifts God gives to actually him himself, the giver of the gifts to pray for a real stirring in our city. And I asked us as well to pray for the same kind of stirring in ourselves, that by his grace God would actually re-energise us so that we would be wholeheartedly desiring to worship him. And now this is not a check-up. Um, I'm not going to be taking um, hands as to who remembered to pray for those things during the week. But, but I do want to ask you, and even if you weren't here last week, 
Should you pray like that, what would you expect? What if God actually did revive our city? Uh, What if God did stir our hearts so that we were just solely committed to what Jesus asked of us? You know, what if God stirred us up so much that we, we really did seek first his kingdom? What if he stirred us that we would take up our cross daily? What if we were so deeply moved in our hearts that we would be going out, you know, teaching everyone we came across to obey everything that he taught? You know, what would happen if God actually stirred us up like that? You know, have a true and single-minded devotion to his worship. What do you think would happen? Would it change you? Do you think you'd spend your time or money any differently? You know, what reactions would you get from your, your family and your friends? Uh, what would your neighbours and your workmates say if that happened? If God actually stirred us up to be passionate for true worship here as a congregation, as 9.45, would Kira Billy notice? So we pick up Ezra, uh, whose main concern is the, the restoration of real worship. Uh, by, by you know, restoring the physical temple. Because before Jesus came, the only place true worship could happen was at that temple in Jerusalem. Uh, 70 years of them being in exile, now the Persians had taken over from the Babylonians, they'd been sent back. And in the opening chapters, we, we read and discovered how God stirred up the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike so that they would actually see real worship restored, the temple rebuilt. Uh, and the story picks up as we see the effect of that kind of stirring. And we get some answers for our what-ifs and, and insight into what you and I should expect when God stirs a passion for true worship here. Two expectations. Uh, first, expect opposition. And secondly, uh, expect God's victory, that no opposition can stop his plans. Let, let's look at the first expectation, opposition. Uh, so Ezra 3 finishes... 537 BC, um, they've just laid this new foundation stone for the, the second temple they're going to build. And there were celebrations in the close of chapter 3. They were offering, making offerings in a way they hadn't done for at least 70 years, but probably hundreds of years, doing it right the way that God was actually pleased with. But not from everyone. Now, like modern Sydney, uh, the land wasn't full of people who loved God. There was a mix. There was those who wanted to serve God and those who were actually enemies of God. 4 verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, uh, they're the the tribes uh, who had returned, heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, well, opposition comes. And as the story plays out, we see that um, when passion for God comes, so comes opposition in a whole variety of ways. Uh, First of all, we see the the enemies trying to pose from within. Uh, So in verse 2, did you notice they made a really nice offer? We'll help you. Now, at face value, it seems kind. We've got to read between the lines. You've got to see, verse 1 helps us see to understand, no, no, this isn't help from friends. These are enemies. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you go later on, read 2 Kings 17, you'll see that um, these people had never had a fear of the Lord, even though they claim, oh, we've been serving God for ages. No, no, no. First point of opposition, sneak in uh, from inside, infiltrate, wear their, wear their passion down, weaken it, water it down, weaken their integrity. You know, slow the temple's restoration from inside. Uh, it's fairly obvious, trap verse 3, it fails. They say, you've no part in building a temple to the Lord our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. Uh, it's not kind of racism or exclusion um, unnecessarily. By the end of chapter 6, you actually see other nations who want to serve God are joining in. They know these are enemies. They're not caught out. So opposition ratchets up a little. 
Uh, four, in verse 4 and 5, uh, a campaign of strategic discouragement. Uh, quite literally, um, discouragement there means they want to weaken their hands. They want to make it hard to do God's work. And it goes on for 16 years until Darius reigns. If any of you have done kind of DIY stuff at home, home renovations, you'll know that building projects are hard work. Um, they're hard work even when it runs smoothly. Uh, it's hard work even when the council actually uh, are on your side and want to give approval. It's still hard. Uh, no, no, it's hard enough, it's expensive, and, and you know, it takes you away from your full-time job. Um, you know, it's hard. That's exactly their situation. Uh, building the temple took them away from their own work. Building the temple cost them money. But worse, there were people constantly for 16 years stirring up discouragement, bribing officials, slowing the process down at every step. They're slowed but not stopped. Until 520 BC. Uh, opposition goes to the next level in verse 6. Uh, the strong arm of the law. A letter is written to Xerxes, who's the new king of Persia. So there's been a regime change. Uh, and every time when there's a, a transition of leadership, uh, there's always rumblings of dissent. You know? uh, and it happened then. We've got other historical accounts when Xerxes came to power across this massive empire, which kind of went from India all the way into kind of the edges of Europe. Uh, you got, across that huge empire, there were rumblings. People thought, new leader, chance for a bit of rebellion. Uh, and so they send a letter which, in short says, if you, king, allow these Jews to build, they will rebel. Uh, in verse 17, we pick up just after we read, um, the king sends his reply. Uh, and in his letter, he, he gives a kind of knee-jerk reaction. He halts the construction. So in verse 21, issue an order to these men to stop work. This city may not be rebuilt until I so order. So what, what do we take from this? Well, you know, if God stirs up people to really want to see him honoured and worshipped, there will be opposition. So too now, if we are stirred up to want to see God and his name honoured in our lives, in our city, there will be, first and foremost, opposition. Now, let's not be surprised if opposition comes. Jesus taught his disciples at length about this. Uh, in John 15, he pointed out that, that no servant is greater than his master. They hated me, they will hate you. You know, we're so quick to forget the plain teaching of Jesus, aren't we? Uh, every now and then, I, uh, Anna and I consider what our future will be, like where we will live when retirement happens and we don't have a house anymore. Uh, and I suppose expectations come up at that point. Um, in that, I suppose two main themes of expectation. I expect we'll keep, want to keep serving Jesus wherever we are. I also expect we'll probably want to live a fairly ordinary, mundane Australian middle-class life. I don't necessarily expect what Jesus promised me. That's true, yeah, that the, the more we by our, our good works stand as light in this dark world, the more by our good works we, we stand as salt in a decaying society, um, the more we do that, the more our community will actually praise our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. That's true. But it's also true, the more passionate we are for God, the more we'll be opposed. Uh, in John 1, uh, speaking of Jesus, Jesus the light came into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. You know, just like we've been reminded uh, by Melinda in that mission update of Prashant in South Africa and his Hindi family who now disowned him. A little closer to home, a, a woman converted later in her life, started going back to church. She, she took her kids. Um, her husband wouldn't join her at first, but that's okay. You know, you do what keeps you happy and that was fine. 
But over time, as she grew in her commitment to Christ uh, and in her godliness, uh, her husband's indifference became active discouragement. Uh, So he would organise events to clash with church. Uh, He would, as they head out the door, give the kids a better offer uh, instead of going to church. If God does stir us up to be passionate for him, there will be opposition. It means we're going to have to keep being inventive, doesn't it? Uh, At university, I was part of a Christian group. Um, uh, During the orientation week, we used to run campus tours because we wanted to, I suppose, love and look after the first years, we wanted to make some contact with them. Uh, student union at my university uh, saw this was good. You know, a lot of people in need. Twenty-seven thousand students. You know, it's like a it had its own postcard postcode. It's a big, big place, and so they thought that was good. They started running the guided tours, and they banned the Christian group from all the campus's entrances, so we couldn't offer the same. Uh, so we had to be creative. We started running social events um, on the campus during that period. So um, had a thing, colonnade dash, running around the the, the uni's quad, um, ripped off from Chariots of Fire, if you've seen the movie. Um, purely as a bit of fun, uh, but also a way of caring for people who knew, building contact with them. Again, it was seen by the student union was, uh, as good, taken away from the Christian group. That's how it had to be more inventive. You know, if you do, as I, I suggested, read Acts, as you read Ezra during these next couple of weeks, read them together, you'll see so often God uses opposition to make his people creative proclaimers of the gospel. Um, that's exactly what was happening in, in Acts that, that reading Graham gave to us, where you know, the, the disciples were quite content, despite being told, go tell the world of Jesus. They were content staying in Jerusalem. What made them move? Well, opposition happened, and they were scattered, so they had to go out and proclaim it. You know, we will be inventive, and God will use opposition to make us do what he wants. Make us proclaimers, creative, inventive proclaimers of him. You know, I, I praise God for the, uh, the inventive measures that happen in our church. There's I Heart Curability and community lunches and playtime and uh, in a few months' time, you know, uh, carols under the bridge. But God is going to, I suppose, make us and needs to make us a whole lot more passionate and inventive before we see Curability shaken to the point where either there is an outbreak of thankful belief or more solid opposition. You know, if God stirs it up, there will be us up, there will be opposition. It will come in a variety of ways, whether it's you know, infiltration of people in our church who, who want to teach false things about Jesus, or whether it's those outside, whether it's at the political level. If God stirs us up, there'll be opposition. But secondly, I want us to remember God won't be defeated. Yeah, that's the other expectation from Ezra. No opposition can stop God's plans. Um, Ezra 5, we're going to kind of skim over two chapters here. Ezra 5 opens with the, the work of Haggai and Zechariah. Um, why is that strange? Well, because they're prophets. You would think the problem is the building work has stopped, so what do we need? We need a passionate engineer to step forward and go, oh, no, no, let's sort this building thing out. We need a a politician of integrity to stand up to the might of Persia, don't we? That's what we need. No, 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 we need some prophets. Yeah. Uh, How are they going to fix up the situation? Well, because the problem is not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. Just like you might remember, uh, Jesus in Mark 2 saw a paralytic man and says to him, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because it's his deeper problem. After that, he dealt with the presenting problem of the man not being able to walk. In the same way, uh, they have stopped the work because of a spiritual problem. They have been overwhelmed to fear men more than God. But God will not be stopped. He stirred their hearts before, uh, and again, he is going to, with prophetic preaching, stir them up again to obey him. 
So the preaching comes, the work restarts uh, with some confidence because in in 5 verse 5, you'll notice they have the eye of their God watching over the elders. The gracious hand of God is upon them. Uh, And so reading through, you can read it through later, but uh, a second report goes to a new king. Darius is now in control. He does real research. He actually checks out what had actually happened. uh, And he sees that originally Cyrus had said they were supposed to build this. And so we skip on. He gives permission. Four years pass. And in chapter 6, the temple is completed. And at the climax of chapter 6, there is a celebration, Passover, A remembrance of God's deliverance of them is celebrated and the punch of the story is shown. No opposition can ever thwart God. Have a look at just that final verse of chapter 6, 6 verse 22. Uh, For seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria. Uh, Quite literally it means um, God had turned his heart, this king, that he assisted them in the work of the house of God. Now, what will happen if God stirs up in us a passion to worship him? Uh, Yes, we'll be opposed, but but no opposition will stop God's plans. What's that mean for us? Again, I want to say, as we keep reading Ezra, we need a bigger view of how how great our God is. Now, we sang how great is our God at the start of our service. He is a great God, and we need to keep understanding just how big he is. Again, it's God who takes the initiative to restore true worship here. In the opening chapter of Ezra, he he stirred the hearts of his people and here he does it again by his word. You can't underestimate the power of God's word to revive people. Someone told me how, um, I suppose in their Bible study group, they always seem to do the same thing. You know, they turn up, everyone, they chat, they sit around, they read the word, they talk a lot, they pray a bit. Uh, In one sense, they're right. We do just do the same kind of thing. But what we're doing is not just sitting around chatting. How we are coming to be transformed by the living word of God, the very breath of God. Yeah, he might work through what seems very ordinary ways, but what he produces in true worship is extraordinary. Yeah, we must realise our God is big. Uh, in those opening chapters of Ezra, God worked through unbelievers. Uh, but but it, it pushes it bigger here in, in 4 to 6. Um, an understanding of God grows. God doesn't just work through indifferent unbelievers. God actually triumphs over active opposition to establish his true worship. Now, he did it in Ezra. It's exactly what he did at the cross. You know, in Acts 2, Peter preaches how, how Jesus was put to death by wicked men, men who hated Jesus, men who hated the purposes of God, but they were doing exactly what God purposed and foreknew. See, in Ezra 6.22, when it says that he, God turned the heart of the king, it doesn't mean he made the king of Assyria a believer. It means that he turned an opponent of his into nothing more than his servant. You know, God always has us in his hands and we never have him in ours. A conversation I, I heard about Mary McKillop, um, she's been talked about a lot recently, uh, led into miracles uh, went along the lines that surely only a fool would believe in miracles because we're quite advanced people these days, scientifically, philosophically. Yeah, who would believe in miracles anymore? Uh, I suppose the conversation struck me because I've, I've been sceptical over the miracles claim for Mary McKillop and I had to ask, was it because I'd fallen into the same trap of assuming that I have God in my hand and he can only do what I think he can do? Our yeah, God is a big God. We are his, in his hand. 
which means finally we need to get our fear right. So the big problem in Ezra 4 was that God's people had gotten their, their hierarchy of fear mixed up. You know, they were afraid of local opposition, uh, even more they were afraid of the king's law, and they were right to. You know, in Romans 14, we're told, you know, you should fear governing authorities. They're, they're not, they don't wield the sword for nothing, we're told. The problem they had was their fear of humans was greater than their fear of God. You know, they failed to see just how great the true and living God was. And so when people said to them, you need to stop doing God's work, they just stopped. In Acts 4, Peter and John were faced with the same dilemma. Uh, they were told, you need to stop speaking about the name of the Lord Jesus. And their response, judge for yourselves whether it's right for, in God's sight to obey you rather than God. You know, it was Jesus himself who taught in Matthew 10, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, as we look at Ezra, as we consider what might happen if God stirred us up, we need to ask the question, have we got our hierarchy of fear right? You know, the big test is whether our comfort to speak of Jesus is affected by who's listening. You know, in all honesty, do, do we say less about Jesus with our unbelieving friends because, oh, that will bring Jesus more honour if we're quiet about him uh, or because it will save our reputation? I preached at both a, a wedding and a funeral this week. Uh, at both of them, I, I feel that momentary temptation to speak less about Jesus uh, because of what I think uh, the majority of people want to hear. They, they don't actually really come, they don't really want to hear about Jesus. And so I feel that temptation to speak less of him. You know, because the, the desire for acceptance is powerful. And, and we don't need to fight that. It's okay to have a desire for acceptance. We just need to remember who it's more important to be accepted by. Now God is a big God, a mighty God. Let's get our fear right. What if God did answer our prayer? What if he did stir us up to crave him? Yes, we'll be opposed, but God will be victorious. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that you cannot be defeated, that you're a mighty and powerful God. And we, uh, we pray uh, with some trepidation, but we pray that you would stir us up to be passionate for you. Uh, in such a way that um, our friends and neighbours and our community here in, here in Kirribilli would notice. Uh, Father, help us to be people who uh, know just how great and mighty and powerful you are and that we would seek your glory in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.